A big thank you to everyone tuning in and a warm welcome to the podcast on starting and scaling AI ventures where I would host AI leaders from across the globe in an attempt to bridge the large gap of what it means to be AI powered and how you can help your organization get there. The 6th edition of this podcast features Neer Eyal. Neer is the best-selling author of Hooked: How to Build Habit-Forming Products and Indistractable: How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. As a former graduate of the Stanford GSB, he has also taught at the Stanford GSB and Hasso Plattner Institute of Design. His writing on technology, psychology and business appears in the Harvard Business Review, The Atlantic, TechCrunch and Psychology Today. Neer is also known to put his money where his mouth is, being an active investor in habit-forming technologies such as Eventbrite, Anchor.fm, which was acquired by Spotify, Product Hunt, Pantry, Kahoot, and Refresh.io, which was acquired by LinkedIn. Hey, Neer, very glad to have you on the call today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Could you tell us about why you wrote Hooked and what the Hooked model really is? Sure. So I wrote Hooked because I wanted to democratize the techniques used by some of the world's most habit-forming products. So when you think about what kind of products are really world-class at creating user engagement and sustained retention, you know, you come up with the usual suspects of Google and Facebook and uh, Slack and uh, uh, Snapchat and in the enterprise space as well, companies like Salesforce, for example. So there are many, many companies that are really masters of keeping their customers engaged. And so what I wanted to do was to reveal their secrets so that the rest of us can build the kind of products and services that can build healthy habits in people's lives in order to build the kind of products and services that they use because they want to, not because they feel like they have to. Uh, I really think that is the, the, the future of, of uh, tech products. And I, I believe this for the past six years and that's definitely bored out. And so we've seen products in pretty much every conceivable industry uh, use the hook model now uh, that the book has sold over 250,000 copies. And I've, I've seen it applied just, you know, just about everywhere uh, in education, for example, Kahoot, uh, the world's largest educational software, the company just went public uh, in October. They use the hook model to help get kids hooked to uh, education product, uh, to their education product. Companies like Fitbod use the hook model to get people hooked to exercise. Uh, so there are countless examples of people using the hook model to build good habits in people's lives. Yep, and just wanted to understand from you on uh, if, if you could touch up about what hook model really is and then three-step uh, rewards that you describe in the model. Sure. So the hook model is a design pattern designed to connect the user's problem to the company's product with enough frequency to form a habit. And it's through successive cycles through the hook, which has these four steps of a trigger, an action, a reward, and an investment. By sending people through these four steps in the user experience, this is how we shape uh, behaviors and how we form habits in our customers' lives. Yeah. And of course, I was reading uh, across your blog and, and very recently, you mentioned uh, machines and humans are no longer indistinguishable from each other in the way you make them. And, and that's not science fiction anymore. It's good business. Uh, what did you think about AI's role in the products that we use every day? 
So I think that where AI really fits into the uh, into the hook model is in the investment phase. The investment phase is really what separates uh, an offline habit from an online habit. In that, uh, you know, when you think about habit formation, for you know, if you want to create a new habit of brushing your teeth every day, or you know, something like that, well, then you just need a cue, a, a behavior, and a reward, and that's sufficient. But when it comes to products, specifically online products. The investment phase is critical. What is the investment phase? The investment phase is where the user puts something into the product to store value in it. And this is really revolutionary from a product development standpoint. If we think about the history of manufacturing, it, 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 it used to take a lot of time to customize products for users' needs. So, you know, Henry Ford is credited with saying that you can have any color of Model T as long as it's black. Well, why did he say that? Because it's a lot of work for him to retool his factory to give one customer a blue car, another customer a red car, another customer a yellow car. That took decades for car companies to do. Uh, it took a very long time. Well, today, the, the speed at which companies can customize products to customer needs and preferences is instantaneous. Because when you use a product like Facebook or Instagram or Slack or WhatsApp or uh, any number of these other services, you are customizing the product based on the stored value. So unlike uh, products that are offline, for example, they depreciate with wear and tear. The more the, you use them, the more wear and tear, the less they are worth. They depreciate. But habit-forming products do the opposite. They appreciate. They get better and better the more they are used. And that is because of this principle of stored value. So the more data, content, reputation, skill that you put into a product, the better it becomes. And so this is really where AI fits in, that if a technology can adapt itself based on your preferences and build that product in real time just for you, you know, we've seen, uh, you know, I think right now the company that comes to mind is TikTok. I mean, TikTok is really masters of this algorithm that they've designed to take every cue they possibly can based on how you use the product to tailor more content to you. And it's, and it's incredibly habit forming. I think it's one of the best applications of the hook model that I've seen uh, to date. Uh, it's, it's a product that is very, very sticky because yeah. of how they use uh, their algorithms to tailor content to you based on how long did you watch the video? Did you like it? Did you comment on it? Did you share it? Did you, what did you do with that video? They are collecting, you know, uh, countless data points in order to tailor content to you in the future. And so AI fits into that equation very well in the investment phase as a vehicle to collect information and then uh, uh, personalize the experience for the customer in real time. I think it's, it's incredible and I love the fact that you mentioned uh, personalization and speed at, at which companies are uh, making these products for users. And, and uh, that leads me to the next question I had was, uh, until today and maybe even uh, say a couple of years ago, habit-forming technology was a great piece out of a psychology book, right? And it, do you feel that's about to change with the amount of data we're collecting and maybe uh, are we are we going to see one touch habit forming product creation soon well i i do think that the world is becoming a more habit forming place <laughs> in that i think there's a, a confluence of uh, a trinity right now of data transferred at faster speeds than ever before uh, access 
uh, that that you can you can uh, you know that companies can get to you and you can get to companies because of the ubiquitous nature of of mobile technology. And all this is happening. The third part of the trifecta is that that uh, uh, speeds, transmission speeds are increasing. So we have more data, more access at higher speeds. And those three things uh, mean that people can pass through the four steps of the hook model faster than ever before and more frequently than ever before, which means that the world is becoming a potentially more habit forming place. And that, and that, of course, has good applications and bad applications, right? So it yeah. depends whether we're forming good habits or bad habits. And uh, very interesting that you mentioned at the end, the good habits and the bad habits front, uh, because as, as we're seeing the products at this pace uh, outgrow a lot of the products that came before, uh, we're drawing so much attention of users and people who need our product, use our product, and we're very tempted to collect vast amounts of data so that we can keep them hooked further on and maybe even personalize it better for them. Uh, what is your take on the ethics of keeping people hooked? So you know, it really depends on what type of, of habit we're creating for the customer. And, and I think that, you know, I, I give a, a, a few frameworks in the book. Uh, there's a whole section in the book about the morality of manipulation. And so there's a few different tests we can use. I, I think the, 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 there's the individual level where we as product designers can ask ourselves, what's the best use of our human capital? And there's a test that I put in the book called the manipulation matrix. Yeah. where we can ask ourselves to pass this two-part test, which the first part of the test is to look at ourselves in the mirror and ask ourselves, is what I'm working on materially improving people's lives? Now, this isn't something that you use to judge others or other people to judge you. This is just for yourself as an a, a, a individual. How do you want to spend your limited time on earth? What kind of products do you want to spend your time on? That's part one. Is this materially improving people's lives? But that's not good enough. I think the second part of the, of the test is to also ask ourselves, am I the user? And the reason I put in that second question is because I want you to break the first rule of drug dealing. The first rule of drug dealing is never get high on your own supply. And so I want you to break that rule. Why? Because if you break that rule and you are the user, you will be the first one to know about any potentially deleterious effects of your product. And if you can answer in the affirmative to both those questions, I am materially, what I'm working on is materially improving people's lives and I am the user, you are what I call a facilitator. And not only is that a good ethical place to be, in which case, you know, if you are building something that materially improves people's lives and you are the user, you can use these, these techniques of behavioral design uh, it, it, with, with good faith but uh, I think th that doesn't necessarily mean you might not have surprises, right? And it doesn't mean you might not uh, uh, mess up and have unintended consequences, yeah. right? As Paul Virilio says, uh, when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck. So there are oftentimes unintended consequences. But I think it puts you in the, in the moral position of saying, look, I built something for myself that I believe materially improves my life and the life of others. That's a good moral place to be. It doesn't mean you're, you're, you're free of all responsibility, but I think that gives you... Uh, a, a quick a quick test to to see if you're on the moral side of, of things in terms of using behavioral design. I also think that it puts you in a very advantageous business position because the hardest part about designing products and services is understanding what your user really wants. That's the hardest part. And what this two-part test allows you to do is to build a product for a person you know very intimately. 
and that is yourself. <laughs> and I think that that is a huge business advantage, that if you design something for you, that you yourself need to see in the world, whether you make a lot of money or not, it doesn't matter, but that you believe the product needs to exist and you would use it, that's an incredibly envious place to be from a product development standpoint. We don't always have that luxury, but where we can have that luxury, we should absolutely take it from a moral and from a product design perspective. And, and I did, uh, in fact, I love uh, the manipulation matrix because this is one of the first things I uh, put up on my wall when I was starting to read Hooked. And I did very recently come across uh, a spin-off and then just as a follow-up to the previous question as well, uh, would, would you uh, speak a little bit about the regret test that you've recently proposed and if that's different from sure. the second part of the Hooked model? Yeah, so the manipulation matrix is, is uh, in my book and it's, it's always been in, in Hooked. And that was meant for a test for individuals. What do you as an individual uh, ask yourself? Now, uh, the, the question came up about what, about what do we do on a, on a product team level or a company level? What's the right test? Uh, because the manipulation matrix doesn't exactly work in a, in a company setting. Uh, and so I looked around at you know, what, what is the mantra, what is the ethical guidelines that we can use as people who are working on a team and we are on the fence about using a particular technique. We're afraid it, it might be manipulative. Um, and so I think what, when we, un, we, to understand manipulation, we have to understand that there are two types of manipulation. That manipulation, it, it carries negative connotation, but actually it's a neutral term. Uh, manipulation has two types. There are two types of manipulation. One is called persuasion and the other is called coercion. So persuasion is helping people do things they want to do, but for lack of good product design, don't do. So, you know, I don't see any moral harm to helping people exercise more or learn a new language or, you know, any number of, you know, making enterprise product more engaging. Nobody's getting addicted to any, you know, to educational software or enterprise <laughs> SaaS software. There's no harm in using all the design hacks you could possibly use. Uh, you know, the variable rewards and the, uh, you know, all of the, all of these, uh, these things, because you're helping people do things that they fundamentally want to do. And so there's, you know, that, that's fine. That's persuasion. Now, the opposite of persuasion, which is helping people do things they want to do, is coercion. Coercion is getting people to do things they don't want to do. And so what is the difference between persuasion and coercion? One word, and that one word is regret, right? That if somebody uses your product and looks back on it and says, oh, I didn't, I didn't mean to do that. I didn't want to do that. I don't like doing business with, the, with a company. If they regret doing business with you, that is a terrible thing, not only from an ethical perspective, because you've coerced them into doing something they didn't want to do, it's also terrible for business, right? <laughs> that, yeah. You know, I think a lot of people in, in, uh, who, are, who are tech critics these days, uh, you know, the vast majority of them have never actually built products. And they don't realize how difficult it is to change consumer behavior. You can have a wonderful product. It's really difficult to get people to change behavior. And if you get them to do something they regret doing, not only will they stop using your product, they're going to tell all their friends on social media that you're a terrible company and that nobody should do business with you. So it's, it's, it's again, you know, many times we have, when it comes to ethics, good ethics is good business, right? You don't want to coerce people because people aren't stupid. They're not puppets on a string. We can't make them do what we want them to do if it's not also what they want to do. You can trick anybody once, 
But if you trick people more than once, they're, they're going to, you know, they're, they're going to uh, understand what you're doing and they're going to stop doing business with you and tell all their friends to not do business with you. So the test that I developed seeks to replace, I think, what is currently a, a, a vacuum, I think, for most uh, product designers when it comes to you know, a, a, a conference room setting and somebody has a, a behavioral design tactic or maybe even a dark pattern that they proposed. Right now, there's no mantra that we can repeat that helps us decide if we are doing the ethical choice, if we're taking the ethical path. Uh, it used to be, you know, companies like Google would say, don't be evil. That used to be Google's motto. It no longer is, actually. It's not their official motto anymore. <laughs> and it's not a very good um, um, motto because uh, what, what is evil? It's very subjective, right? What's evil to you might not be evil to me. So what, what, you know, it's very hard to make that a, a, an objective metric of any sort. Then, uh, you know, some companies will ask the lawyers, right? And, and the lawyers will typically say, well, just, just disclose, right? Just put everything in the terms of service document. But we know that's not really very ethical either because everybody knows nobody reads terms of service, Right, we all know that people just skip over. In fact, there's you know I, I documented a case where uh, a, a, a sneaky uh, worker at a gaming company in the terms of service put in the you know in the fine print of the service you agree to sell your mortal soul to Satan <laughs> just to see if anybody read it. Of course, nobody read it. Um, so terms of service, you know this idea of oh we're doing the ethical thing as long as we disclose it in our terms of service is silly. That's not that's not a high enough bar. Then I came across the golden rule. The golden rule says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But that's a very designer-centric perspective. You know, who's to say that we should do unto others what we think is best? No, what we should do is to do unto others as they want done to themselves. And so this is where I developed the regret test. The regret test says that if the user knew everything that we know, Okay, if we disclosed, if they actually understood, right, if we sat down with them and said, this is what is going to happen when you click this button, this is what is going to happen next. If they, if, if they knew everything that was going to happen that we've designed for them in our product experience, would they do what we've designed for them to do? Or would they regret it? And the good news is this is eminently testable, right? Because what this involves is basically just user testing. We, and we've done this for decades in the product design community. You bring a bunch of people in, you show them the wireframes, you get them to click on the buttons, you see what they do, what they expect to do. And that's how we improve product design. Before design goes live, before UX goes live, we, we do user testing. This has been around for decades. Well, what we need to start doing is to do this regret test. We bring in a representative sample, right? We can do this online as well. And we show them the user experience, telling them exactly what is going to happen right? What's going to happen with their data, what's going to happen with uh, any kind of desi behavioral design tactics we might be using. And by disclosing all that, then we ask them, knowing everything that you now know, which is everything the designer knows about every, you know, potential uh, tactic uh, you used, would they still want to use the product or would they regret using the product? And then we hold ourselves to a simple bar. We say, you know, what is our company standard? Is it 10 out of 10 people need to agree? Is it Nine out of 10 to need to pass the regret test. We just need some kind of bar, some kind of number. The beauty of this regret test is that once people circulate the article I wrote about this, you can find the article on my blog, nearandfar.com, just type in regret test. When people at a company say, hey, this is what we should do from now on, whenever we have this, this uh, gray area, 
it has a chilling effect because when an employee raised their hand and say, you know, boss, that's a great idea, but just to make sure that we don't get pushback later on, why don't we run a regret test? And just that question has a wonderful chilling effect that nine times out of 10, you don't even have to run the regret test. The person says, you know what, that's probably, you know, we probably shouldn't use that technique. That, that may be misconstrued as, as, as deceptive or coercive. I think definitely the point that you make is, is very exciting when uh, you don't have to get to the point where you really need to be asking the question. I think it's just uh, the moment you think of the question, it sometimes uh, answers it for itself. And uh, I think uh, I, I did come across your regret test and really connected with me because I think of the scale at which we're building products today, uh, which is far more than what we were doing maybe 15, 20 years ago. I think that's uh, something that definitely should be in play with a lot of companies and organizations. Uh, and just moving and, and switching gears a little bit more from uh, ethics to uh, product building of sorts, I uh, wanted to understand if you believe uh, the importance of understanding what is and isn't your product's job before you begin product building. Yes, so, so this is where, um, you know, step one of the hook model is understanding the user's triggers. Yeah. And so there are two types of triggers. We have what we call external triggers. These are the pings, the dings, the rings, anything in our outside environment that prompts us to action. And then we have what we call internal triggers. Internal triggers are uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape from. Boredom, loneliness, fatigue, anxiety, any kind of uncomfortable sensation that we seek to relieve with a product's use. And so that is the ultimate job of your product. It, I, I, it's not just the job to be done. It's actually even a deeper level. Most people just stick with the very surface level. You know, when you say, okay, what, what, why would someone use your product? Oh, our product is a server-side software, blah, 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 blah. It's very technical. No, you need to go deeper. You need to understand their psychology and their pain that they are looking to satiate, the itch they are looking to scratch with your product's use. And if you don't understand that internal trigger and your entire team cannot articulate it, you're flying blind. Yeah, definitely. And, and uh, also wanted to uh, reference the fact that this is something uh, of a product building job that I believed uh, was, was very center stage to individuals even thinking about how to start and move into say, what do I want to design? Because I think uh, as, as you mentioned earlier as well, I think in some shape or form, you'd be uh, questioning the ethics a lot later, or maybe a lot of other things later. If you do that earlier, it was very useful to get it out of the way as quick as you can. Uh, also, yeah, absolutely. I wanted to switch gears again to uh, focus particularly on Hooked and uh, the vitamin painkiller theory that you reference in Hooked. Do you believe personalization going forward is, is the painkiller or the vitamin of the future? Which one do you think it is? So uh, the, the, where I mentioned the vitamin versus painkiller is to kind of tease out uh, a bit of a, a sacred cow, I think, uh, in the product design and the, the, the startup community, which is, you know, investors will tell you that, that they only invest in, in the painkillers, not the vitamins. What's the difference? A, a, a painkiller is when a product uh, you know, solves an articulatable need, when, when a, a customer can say, oh, I need that product, build me that, right? That, that's a, that's a painkiller. 
Uh, it's something that they must have. That they say, you know, when you have a, a headache, you say, I need my uh, aspirin or whatever it is. I, I need that, right? You can articulate that's what you need. And that to the most, but, uh, you know, for the most part is kind of the orthodoxy in, uh, in the investor community. They only want to invest in the, uh, the painkillers, not the vitamins. What's a vitamin? A vitamin product is the kind of product that is a nice to have. It's not a must have, it's a nice to have, right? If you forget your vitamins, if you go on vacation and you forget to pack vitamins, no big deal. If you have a headache and you don't have a, a painkiller, that's a big problem. So investors don't like to invest in vitamins, they like to invest in painkillers. Now the question is, the, way I, the reason I challenge this assumption is that if you ask yourself, think about the world's most uh, disruptive technologies of the past couple decades, many of them started out as nice to have, not must haves, right? Nobody woke up at four in the morning and said, oh my God, I need to update my status, right? Nobody knew they needed Facebook before it existed. How could we possibly say it was a, a painkiller? It was very much a, a vitamin. Uh, and so, and so the, the question is, how can that be? How can a company that was just a, a vitamin, right? How did it become now a painkiller? That today, if Mark Zuckerberg said, you know what, I'm, I'm tired of this. I'm shutting off Facebook. Uh, no more of this. I'm done. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop. Uh, it's, it's all, it all goes dark tomorrow. People would have conniption fits, right? This would be a big problem. All of a sudden, Facebook has become a painkiller product. Why? Habits. That's why. When a product becomes a habit, it moves from a nice to have to a must have. It moves from a vitamin to a painkiller. And that's what we see when products go through these four steps of hook model, when they become essential parts of people's lives, when they are products that are used with little or no conscious thought as habits, they become uh, you know, virtually indispensable. They become the kind of products that people begin to depend upon. And, and incidentally, that forms huge barriers to entry uh, and competitive advantages for a, a company that's lucky enough to create those consumer habits. I want to touch up again and follow up on, and this leads to my last question to you, was also on user habits. And since you did mention it, uh, wanted to follow up on why additionally do you think it makes sense to start building these user habits over, say, intelligent applications and so on and so forth? Is there is there a possibility that I could probably uh, build something that is a good to have and eventually make it look like a must have as we move forward? It, the, the, exactly this, by, by creating that habit. And this is how a, a vitamin becomes a painkiller yeah. is when it able to, to, uh, to form that consumer habit. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I think that that brings us to uh, the end of the questionnaire as well. I'm very thankful, very glad to have you on the call. And this has been very interesting since I've been a great fan of you over the years. It's just amazing to speak to you about all of these things, Ken. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.